0: It feels good to give back and to be able to help others and to use what you have, no matter whether it's big or small, your talent, your resource, your funds, to do something to make a difference. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee
1: Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. I'm so thrilled today to have the opportunity to introduce all of you who don't know her already to a true inspiration of mine, a great friend in Annabelle Chauncey, the founding director and CEO of School for Life. Annabelle grew up in rural New South Wales and completed her law degree before heading off to Africa on an aid project. And when she landed in Uganda and saw this country of 42 million people where only 56% of kids complete primary school, she decided that she was going to do something about it. A decade on and they've got more than 600 kids in school and more than 120 members of the local community employed. It's exceptional and as you see that is just scratching the surface of what Annabelle hopes to achieve over the course of her lifetime really interesting and honest conversation about what it takes to build a charity from the ground up, the challenge of working cross-culturally, the lessons that she's learned in leadership from her journey thus far, and overwhelmingly an extraordinary level of passion that I think you'll find utterly inspiring. So without further ado, here's Annabelle Chauncey, OAM. Well, Annabelle Chauncey, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Coffee Pots. Pleasure, Holes. I'm so
0: glad to be here.
1: Well, I've been excited to have this conversation for a really long time because you're someone I seriously admire. And I feel like you must have been one of those people that just woke up with a burning passion to change the world. Where did that start? Because there's not that many people that head to Africa, see that there's a problem and decide that they're going to be the one that does something about it. I want to know where that starts.
0: Yeah, you definitely don't wake up with it. I think um, it was, a, it was a definitely addressing a need that I saw. So, I went to Uganda when I was 21. I'd actually signed up to do a three-month uh, teaching program in Kenya. In 2007. And um, I went to a high school where um, service was a huge component of, of the values that were instilled in us. And our high school model were, motto was in love, serve one another. You know, it awakened in me a desire to serve and give back. And I think that was such a strong part of who I was and my identity. We did anything from Duke of Edinburgh, Meals on Wheels, Riding to the Disabled, volunteering. And it was almost a school which was based 50% on achievement and 50% on service. So when I was finishing up at Frenchham, I went off to study to be um, a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I went on to Sydney Uni to study arts law. And I was halfway through my degree and I just was really struggling with what I was going to actually do with this degree. I couldn't see how I was going to actually practically be able to implement it in a way that was going to awaken something in me and that I was going to go to work every day going, you know, I love what I do and I want to do more of it. So I, that was that was sort of the, I guess, the crossroads. i just graduated the arts component of the arts law and I had two years of law left to go and I said to mum and dad... I'm off I'm going to Kenya to teach English to kids and I think they were <laughs> they were pretty shocked um and pretty concerned about that there's some 20 year old daughter little girl one of three heading over to Kenya which is incredibly unknown I grew up in a pretty conservative family on a sheep and cattle farm um, in rural New South Wales. So, for me to go off and say that, I think, was quite a shock to them. So, then when I got to Kenya, um, you know, I can imagine the shock continued because um, six weeks in, Kenya went to election and as unfortunately a lot of elections do in Africa, it, um, it exploded um, and very rapidly I was evacuated out of Kenya and into Uganda. Um, And it's an interesting scene when you're in the middle of a conflict like that because you're there to help people and then sort of what it felt like to me was that I was just running straight away, you know. And so I got to Uganda and I wasn't ready to go home. My contract had finished with the organisation I was working with but I'd put my degree on hold and I'd fundraised lots of money to get educational supplies. I'd self-funded the trip which I'd worked in a pub to do for many months and so I went, you know what, let's just give it a go and see what Uganda brings and it was in Uganda that I was just absolutely blown away by the number of kids who don't have access to education but the thing is with children is that they will walk between five and ten kilometers every day on an empty stomach to get to the mud huts that they call school teachers don't have any training the kids would come to school with these big smiles on their faces and Mm. I just thought wow it really doesn't take that much to make a difference over here um, so it probably wasn't as exciting as waking up one morning and thinking, I'm going to change the world. But I knew that I could change the world for a few people. Was School for Life
1: born then when you were over in Uganda or was that when you came back to Australia that you developed the plan?
0: There were a few There were a few things that happened. One was that I went home via Tanzania and I'd seen this incredible woman, Gemma Sassia's school over in Tanzania. She's um, an Aussie lady who had started three schools. I said to her, Gemma, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to do it in Uganda for the kids that need it so much. And she said, don't do it. And I said, just watch me. Um, And I kind of went back home scratching out a business plan on the back of a, you know, scrap paper, basically anything I could find. And and that was it for me. I knew that education was a gift that you couldn't take away from these kids. And so I started to put together School for Life. Yeah, so it probably wasn't, um, it, it really, the vision was to build schools And then what unfolded from that was the need to build entire organisations to underpin the way that these schools were going to run.
1: So I can imagine Gemma probably wasn't the only one who told you some kind of version of no. I can imagine mom and dad saying, honey, we'd love it if you found your passion in Australia. I can imagine quite a few people saying, you sure you know how hard this is? What is it that allowed you to say so firm in your conviction that no, this is what I need to be doing um, in the face of all the detractors?
0: Yeah, I wish I was one of those kids that actually did what I was told. I feel like I was always one of those people that just had to prove people wrong. You know, if you say I can't do it, then I'm just going to do it and I'm going to do it really well. So in some ways, there was a desire to prove people wrong. But then there was also, you know, such a naivety and a passion, which were both such valuable tools in driving the organisation forward. Because when you don't know the challenges that are ahead of you, you've got nothing really holding you back. You don't have fear doesn't exist when you don't fully comprehend the extent of what you're going to create. So I think I think it was quite interesting, but I mean, look, I had everyone say, don't do this. I had everyone say, you're crazy. I think mum and dad thought I'd just grow out of it and then I'd come back and I'd be a lawyer. And no, I didn't. I sort of continued to drive it forward. And as each step kind of unwound or moved forward, I, I became more and more passionate and there was nothing going to hold me back after that. I was pretty much a rebel with a the cause then. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) rather than one without one. I love that. The
1: other thing I found really interesting was uh, when you were talking about how you started with one version of what impact would look like, and that was a focus on building skills and how that evolved and expanded over time. And I think that's really interesting in the context of how do we make sure at the forefront of the way that we work is how do I strive to have the greatest impact? Can you talk to us
0: about how your thinking around how that came to life evolved? So interesting, and the goalposts shifted over time. And I think you've got to maintain an attitude of adaptability and of flexibility, particularly when we're working in a context like we're working. Um, but I think it resonates right across business, is you can't remain too rigid. You know, you've got to be dynamic. And I think one of the big things for me was going in and recognizing, okay, so there's a massive need for education. And starting these schools, um, and it wasn't without its challenges, you know, I I could list them for days with, you know, old system title and land acquisition and, you know, right through to charitable registrations and licenses and working with the Uganda government, which is heavily bureaucratic. But I think one of the big things for me was, you know, the first day, January 31, 2011, our our first two classrooms opened and our first day the kids came to school for the very first time. And it was then that the whole process of learning and evolution started even further because what we recognised was that, you know, you think, oh, yeah, we'll start a school. Well, the kids came to school and they'd never seen a pen or pencil before. They'd never done up a pair of sho- shoelaces because they'd never owned a pair of shoes. Many of them were falling asleep on their desks because they were suffering from malnutrition. You know, I think six of our builders came down with typhoid in the first six weeks of building, and wow. that was because there was no access to clean water. So all of these sort of things just started to pop out of the glue, and we recognised it needed to be much more holistic than just provision of education, it was water, food, you know, healthcare, provision of uniforms and books. Um, And then, you know, going so far as to a few years down the track, recognising actually the kids can't really, we're not really getting the results that we want when we're bringing them into school age five. We need to bring them into school age three so that they're socialised with the idea of school. Um, Their parents can't help them with homework because most of their parents finished school when they were in year two. So it was just like understanding just the complexity of the social issues that we were dealing with and understanding how dynamic we needed to be in order to actually deliver on our objective, which was to provide quality education. And it can't really be quality if the kid isn't able to learn because they're starving or they've had bad water and so they're away for two weeks or they've got malaria. And so a really holistic approach was very, very important. But then also as I sort of said, you know, just having that ability to be amenable to changing the way I initially envisage things.
1: One of the things, I guess, that goes hand in hand with that is the moment that you start to appreciate the complexity of what you're working to achieve or the holistic nature of the solution you're after, is I imagine the moment where uh, the scale of your operations significantly grows. You've grown enormously now, I think you've you said you've got about 120 on your team, um, more than 600 uh, students that you're supporting. How how easy or hard has that growth journey been and what are the lessons that you've learned on the way?
0: So many and I, d- I don't think you could ever say it's been easy but I don't I also think I would have given up if it was easy because I would have probably got bored. <laughs> yeah. um, I quite like that every different phase has its own challenges and it's almost just like a constant problem-solving exercise and I think that's really exciting. I think you've got to ad- adopt a a mindset that's quite open to problems um, and seeing challenges as opportunities for growth rather than negative kind of obstacles and I don't know how to deal with this so I'm just going to walk away. There's been a whole bunch of challenges one being you know we essentially tripled the size of our operations within 24 months. We had this incredible opportunity presented to us well I didn't it probably wasn't presented to us I probably banged the doors down in order to get it but um I I went to I knew that the Cotton On Foundation were doing work in Uganda and um, obviously they've got access to a huge retail chain internationally and um I thought well if they're working in Uganda then surely they would want to fund some of our schools and after about a year of negotiation they said yeah here's 1.25 million US dollars pinned on infrastructure to build two more schools, another primary school and a high school, yeah. And so that was amazing. But I remember going to the board and being like, you know, I've sealed this deal. Or, you know, it wasn't at this stage sealed, but it was, it was, you know, very much kind of very serious level of conversation, heads of agreement were being drafted and we were really starting to talk seriously. And I remember the board saying, you know, Annabelle, this is a double-edged sword you know, this is going to be one of the best things for you but also one of the most challenging because you are now going to grow so fast. Um, are you ready for it? And I was like, well, yeah, absolutely, you know, um, let's let's get this underway. But I think, you know, you don't really ever understand the level of complexity that that growth will have, um, but particularly when you're dealing culturally in different environments. And I've spent a lot of time over the last two years navigating this growth with my team in the trenches you know digging because it's so important that I'm seen to be there trying to work everything out with the team rather than sort of just continuing to push forward and forward and forward. Some of the big learnings have been that change is incredibly difficult and you need to manage it really well. I think making sure that core objectives are kept at the forefront of discussions and you can't reiterate vision more often um, and more clearly like you've got to just keep on keep on doing that I think more often than you think you know almost like continuing to reiterate the message will stop the wheels from falling off a bit and I think I've I've sort of gone on like a bit of a broken record from time to time about you know growth and sustainability and quality education education, ensuring that we've got everyone rowing the same direction. But I think that's really important. And I think getting the right people in the right seats on the bus, which I know is a bit of an old school kind of concept, but it's taken time to make sure that I've got the right people in the right seats and that they're not playing 10 people's roles like they used to be. Um, it's okay to let go of some of the responsibilities now that we've grown. You don't have to do 10 things all at the same time. Um, And I think also for me, just understanding that it's okay after you undertake significant growth to then consolidate and make sure the foundation's are really strong rather than just pushing forward, forward, forward. Um, Very forward-thinking person and to have to sort of over the last six months go, okay, we need to systematise, we need to make sure things are really solid has been quite hard for me um, Mm. to go, you know, okay, let's just make sure that what we're doing here is really strong because I'm usually always looking forward. And the other
1: degree of complexity you've got is you're managing uh, relationships and operations across two countries, Uganda and Australia. Tell us, what have you learned about effective cross-cultural communication and leadership?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good one, hal And I think one of, I mean, what I will say really clearly is that my founding principle was always to empower local people to help themselves. So, I don't have a team of Westerners over on the ground in Uganda. My team is Ugandan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, that has meant that I've got to bridge that gap really quickly and I've got to get in the trenches and learn to understand the way people communicate and the cultural differences that we have between Australia and Uganda. So, one of them is, you know, it's quite um, bureaucratic. You do as your manager says. You don't ever challenge or question what you've been told to do. You just do it. And sometimes I'm like, what do you mean? You know, you're you're not thinking for yourself. Where's the creativity? You know, where's the challenging whether this is the best way of doing something and it's like well no that's what our boss told us to do um so unpacking some of that and helping to i guess mentor and coach and grow people so that they do have less fear attached to actually expressing themselves is really important giving people a voice is key i think not not always does my team in uganda do exactly what I would do or sort of want to do things the way that we would do them here in Australia. And then also, I guess, just ensuring that, we have a really clear vision in terms of direction. So, constantly workshopping, constantly idea generating and constantly thinking about the strategy. Are we doing the best that we can be doing? Are we doing it the most efficiently and effectively way, effectively that we could? So, just challenging, I guess, a lot of my role is and growth um, and bringing the right people, you know, like... There is so much to be said for having the right mentors and coaches around the team, you know, and wherever possible I get really prominent Ugandans to be doing that role because it's more important that Ugandans are leading Ugandans. It's embraced better. I'm quite quick to act. Sometimes it's better to be less reactive when working in cultures like Uganda. Sometimes it's better to reflect and take a bit of time to respond. If you were to go
1: back to 21-year-old Annabelle and give her a bit of advice now, what would you tell her?
0: um crawl before you walk and walk before you run um (laughs) that was certainly one and i think look a lot of my founding directors said that to me and I, I couldn't understand it and I remember in my initial business plan we sort of set out to to build three schools within 12 months and I remember the board saying you know how are you going to get some into this and how are you going to acquire the land and registrations and blah 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 and I was like oh you know it's all possible so I think it's sometimes slowing down a bit but also um being a bit less perfectionistic, perfection can lead to need for control and I think if you really need, you know, I've, I've learned over time that I need to empower my Ghana team in particular. Um, it comes more naturally when you're in Australia to empower your team but, you know, the more that you can entrust your staff with decision-making capability, the better. But yeah, look, I don't know that I change a lot because I think passion and naivety as I say, are two really useful tools when they're directed in the right way and and they worked for me. We
1: talk a lot in charitable circles about how difficult it is to raise money and yet you and your team have been able to raise over $6 million in five years. What for you has been critical to be able to get that connection and ongoing resonance of your mission with donors, with sponsors, with people that can get behind you and support your cause?
0: I mean, I think what we've got on our side is tangibility. And I think that's played really well to that in the sense of I can go and ask a funder for $20,000 and the next day start building the water tank they just said yes to. I think in the charitable space people want to see results. I think they're sort of tired of sort of of, you know, the the age-old question of where does my money go, how much money goes into administration. Now, I'm all for administration, don't get me wrong. I think the last thing, the worst thing that you can do is run a charity on zero administration. But I also believe that grassroots enables you to have such a strong flexibility and um, ability to act really quickly. And... You know, you're in the ground, you're on the ground in the trenches, you're responding to the problems that you see without multiple layers of bureaucracy. That's been a really core and important part of my fundraising has been going, you know, we've achieved this over the last you know, five years, help us be a part of the next stage, you know, help, help come along for the ride. You can come to Uganda and meet these children. You can, you know, I can give you an update from the ground as to exactly where your dollar's going. So I think it's storytelling. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's giving is emotional. You need to really, really drive an emotional connection to the cause. And I think education is something that most people can believe in and understand because they can't really you know, see a world, maybe their own world, particularly if, you know, they've been quite successful throughout their career without their own education. So, it's just trying to conjure up that connection and then keeping people really well engaged and just, you know, helping them to really see the tangible impact that their money's having. I think the the fourth thing that I'd say is just thank you, you know, gratitude. So often I get people say to me, oh, I gave to so-and-so and I just never got thanked. You know, at the end of the day, nobody owes us anything. You don't have to give anything to charity. You've worked really hard for your dollars and you don't have to do anything, you know. So I think to really appreciate people's efforts, um, be they big or small, if it's $2, it still means something to somebody. And so I've just tried really hard along the way to not lose sight of that as the organisation's grown and to still continue some of the personalised touches. I think some of my team think I'm a bit crazy because I still write to everyone that donates. But it's just so important for me that we keep it at a level where people do feel like they're a part of something and that that they're really, really, you know, appreciated.
1: Absolutely. I think it's awesome that you do that. I wanted to reflect on your own kind of leadership journey. I imagine at 21 as a law student in Sydney University, you would have a really different view of what makes a great leader. Now, 10 plus years on, where your head's at, having spent all that time on the ground in Africa, building your organisation, connecting into community, working cross-culturally. I'm interested now for how you reflect on what makes a good leader and even sort of what you look to hire in the people you surround yourself with.
0: Yeah, great question. And I think it sort of stems back to what we spoke about. I think one of the great, most beautiful parts about Africa is its community. And I think a good leader builds a good community. And I think taking parts of what I've learned in Africa is, you know, I look at my director of schools. She's this incredible woman who is just so bought in and she just garners respect of those around her because She has this beautiful ability to make everybody feel a part of the puzzle. And I think that's so important as a leader is it doesn't matter if you're the admin or you're the CFO, everybody's got a part to play. And so when I look for people to join my team, I look at that ability to join in on the bigger vision and to still make people feel valued because I think, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are the cleaner at our schools or you're the teacher. You are so important. So I think that's been really interesting. I look for communication and an ability to role model behaviour. I think you've got to be able to walk the walk. And over time, I guess, you know, I've I've always been very values-driven. And I think the mistakes that I've made when I've hired too quickly have been often not getting a value alignment. You can't instil that if it's not there. I don't think I think you can teach people skills but I think if they don't align to the values of the organization it's very difficult to turn that around and so always now you know constantly looking at you know what drives you what motivates you why do you want a job with us is it because you truly believe that education is transformational or is it just because it's going to pay your bills You know, And and so that's been really, really important part of my
1: learning. Just reflecting on the incredible journey that you've been on, when it comes to how you've managed your own energy over the course of the journey, I'm interested because you said you're someone that would rather run than crawl or walk. You've grown this organization so quickly. You have straddled living across two continents. Uh, I can imagine there's been a lot of challenging moments throughout that. How have you looked after yourself, managed your energy, done what you need to do to be able to give everything you need to living out your vision?
0: Yeah, good question, Holes. And I don't know that I've got it 100% right still. I think at the end of the day, I'm still very much a workaholic and I do give, you know, 100 hours a week to what I do and I wake up and I think about it and I don't know a day that goes past where I don't think about charity And that's a funny thing because, you know, when I'm talking to people about, you know, brand positioning and messaging and campaigns, I don't know what it feels like to be a normal person walking down the street and to maybe give at the end of tax time, you know. Mm. So, it's sort of, it's been really important to me to sort of try and have some normality as well because, you know, it changes everything, you know. It changes the way you think about a cup of coffee. It changes the clothes that you're wearing. It changes, you know, everything that you start thinking about as your life decisions. But you do also need to be cognizant of the fact that you don't want to burn out as well I love trail running and I have started doing quite a bit of meditation which are both really really good because they're kind of meditative you know trail running is quite meditative being out in nature And I do conk out like once every couple of weeks. I literally sleep for 14 hours Mm -hmm. and I really need that. I really need that. So sometimes I just run out of steam and then I have to just kind of sleep and then I come back to life. But I think it's... Continuing the um, work that I'm doing on the ground has been really important to me to go into the classrooms. You know, over the last kind of twenty four months, i I started stopping going into the classrooms or stopping hanging out with the kids in the playground every few lunch times because I was in management meetings and strategy meetings and partnership meetings. And and I thought, you know what, no, it's really important to ground yourself back with the kids because this is why you're doing it. So I try and just stop every now and then and take that time to to go play with the kids and be silly and, you know, um, push them on the swings and run around with the soccer ball or play netball just just so that you've got that interaction because they're the whole reason that School for Life exists and, you know, they're the future. So it's, yeah, so just taking some some rare moments of reflection to kind of refuel the tank. But yeah, of course, I mean, there's been some dark times. Um, There's been some times when I thought, how the hell am I going to do this? But you sort of grow and you become more resilient over time and you develop grit um, and the ability to let some things wash over you so that you can let go of some of the smaller day-to-day things and just focus on the bigger picture.
1: And I imagine that having the right group of people around you, and that can be the team that you've built, the, the mentors, the, the peer group, you name it, has probably played a really important role uh, for you in that. Two would that be fair?
0: Um, It's been really interesting I I call them the baby CEOs but we're not really babies anymore but there were quite a few of us that started charities around the same time so we all kind of got you know got quite empowered by our own causes and and enthused and you know rolled our sleeves up at a young age to go off and try and you know do different things to, to make the world a better place and sometimes when the wheels are falling off well actually mostly when the wheels are falling off they're the people that I call because you know that they've had these feelings. I think having that that cohort of people who are really actually doing it um, to bounce ideas off and and to, to cry to sometimes if you need to as well, as well as your mentors, I, I attribute the success of my whole career to the people who banded together and, and helped me through the challenges. I love it though because you're the first person who's talked
1: in a podcast about the importance of having a peer group that are in the trenches uh, kind of on an equivalent sort of journey or challenge to what uh, you're in we've had a lot of people who've talked about the power of mentors and you know I'm a big advocate for it but I love that you talk about the importance of having that peer group as well
0: especially those kind of the funding challenge is one that just never goes the way you know it's it's never going to go away you know that little sort of devil sits on your shoulder saying are you going to make budget this month are you going to make budget this month you know can you afford to have grown as quickly as he has and you've got to somehow be able to try and find some peace with the fact that you know if one door closes another one will open it just might take some time and you've got to keep on you know knocking on the doors in order to have one open it's not just going to fall on on your plate so I think sort of those challenges and you know kind of the knock around that you feel when you know when or if a donor's financial circumstances change and they can't give you as much as they said they were going to or is you know, it, that, that never gets unstressful, um, but I think mm-hmm. to have a cohort around you who get it and who live it and understand, you know, that, that stress um, is really powerful. And tell us where's
1: School for Life heading next? What is the next set of goalposts that you're in pursuit of?
0: I've just been in Uganda, I've just found another incredible organisation run by a Ugandan who um, is essentially doing exactly what School for Life is doing. Um, And one of the big things that I, you know, one of my sort of gripes with the NFP is that we don't often work together together well and we don't often share resource wells. so we're in the very early stages of just having conversation around how we can work together to maximize efficiency and obviously increase our output um, so he's educating about a thousand students and so are we and so I think if we can sort of work together and consolidate some of the office and admin side of the businesses we'll be able to get more with less um, so that's really exciting and then concurrently developing more of a sustainability strategy because I want to grow and I want to do more but I'm also cognizant of the fact that I don't want to necessarily just create this fundraising machine. So looking at some value addition on our land so creation of agricultural cooperatives to empower the local farmers and give them access to market things like putting on a mill or a packaging or drying facility to help again to add value to the products and then looking at some investment strategy as well, but primarily looking, using all of these as ways of lifting the community out of poverty so that in time they can pay their own school fees. Future's bright. It's exciting. I, I wish I could do more right away. So I'm just trying to make sure I do it in a sustainable way. So it's just about now, really, how do we scale? How do we do more? How do we help more kids? And in a way that's really, really quality so that they will get jobs and they will be able to support their our own families in life. It's
1: exciting. Mate, it's so exciting. I get so fired up thinking about the future of what you're going to do with School for Life and beyond. Um, I've got two final questions before I let you go and activate these game plans that you've got. First is we've got a lot of people who listen who have got ideas. You know, they're, they're fired up. They want to create more impact in the world than they might be having right now. They've got a cause they really care passionately about. What's your advice for those listening as to what they can go and do as a first action step to start really realising some of the, the want that they have to have an impact in a new area or space than they might be doing right now?
0: I think a few things. One is, I mean, don't let planning paralyse you. Sometimes when you spend too much time in the ideation phase, it'll turn you off wanting to just make a difference and just to roll your sleeves up and get in there. So, I don't think, you know, I think have a strategy but don't over-engineer it to the point where you become paralysed. I think you need to leave some fluidity. I think be driven by passion. If you truly love what you do, you'll wake up every day wanting to do it. And I know that's been a huge sort of key to the success of my own career has been really truly just loving it and loving every part of it, the highs and the lows. And I think just not, not sort of delaying. I think at the end of the day, if you know what you want to do and you're happy and prepared to work hard, you will be successful. Um, but you can't discount that work hard piece because I think, you know, nothing worth having comes easy. And so it is really important to know that it's not, you know all just the keynotes on the stages and you know the the smiling happy photos with the kids there's a lot more that goes behind all of that I think to, to have that grit and determination is really important as well
1: absolutely and tell me if you could encourage our listeners in general to take action after listening to this podcast what would you like to encourage them to go and do
0: Well, they can obviously go visit our website to have a look at our work and come and climb Mount Kilimanjaro with me next year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's schoolforlife.org.au. But I think the other thing I'd say is in terms of action is to To make yourself a better person and to think about how you are walking on this planet and the way that you're going to leave this planet, what legacy are you going to leave? And I think it's really important to have a good, hard think about that because as we're walking on this journey, which can be so very short, I think we need to think about how we're leaving this earth and to have a really long, hard think about what legacy and impact we're going to leave for the lives of other people around us. So I challenge the
1: listeners to have a think about that. What an inspiring note to end on. And, Belle, I just can't thank you enough for making the time to chat with us today. Uh, When people ask me sort of who are are the young Australians that inspire me, who are the leaders in the world that are doing phenomenal stuff, you're a name I reference often. And it's not only because I think you're doing such purposeful work, but I'm also really inspired by the way that you go about doing that. You lead in such an empowering way uh, in a, a manner that lifts entire communities up, not just in terms of the output you have with the educational work, but the way that you empower local communities to be a part of that solution. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, I know that your impact is only going to continue to grow uh, over the course of your life, and I couldn't be a bigger member of your cheer squad. So thank you for being with us today.
0: Thanks so much, Holland. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I look forward to climbing Killy together in 2019. Get amongst it. <laughs> I can promise
1: you it'll be amazing. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.